Good evening, everybody. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And today's podcast is going to look at an issue that every practicing pulmonologist faces on a daily basis, the management of patients with COPD, particularly those with what we have come to call exacerbation, and also the way in which it intrudes in our administrative and perhaps public health life in the enormous effort that has been expended both in research and in clinical interventions to prevent rehospitalization from COPD. So today's guest is Dr. Jerry Krishnan, who is the corresponding author of a paper to be published in the Annals in March. The paper is entitled Interventions to Reduce Hospitalizations Following COPD Exacerbations, a Systematic Review. Dr. Valentin Prieto Centurion was the first author of a multi-institutional effort. Dr. Krishnan is professor of medicine at the University of Illinois. So, uh, Jerry, let me uh, just start with some of the confusion that I have, which is the definition of COPD exacerbation. I actually was involved in the generation of the ATS definition, but it remains somewhat imprecise. I was just looking at some information from the National Health System in the United Kingdom, and uh, most of the definitions are involved in a kind of uh, retrospective way in that we look at an exacerbation as some variation in a COPD patient's symptoms beyond day-to-day variation that results in a change in treatment. So my first question to you is, do you agree with these definitions? Is COPD exacerbation well enough defined for us to focus so much effort in preventing it? Sure. Thank you so much for the invitation to participate in this podcast. And I think you're, you're asking a really a central question here, which is, you know, what is a COPD exacerbation and how do we define it and can we actually prevent it? So I'd probably begin by just reminding our, you know, our listeners that chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is one of the most common pulmonary conditions and that it's now the nation's third largest killer. It surpassed stroke in 2010 and, and is now the third leading cause of death in the United States. COPD is defined clinically. And as, as our listeners will know, that it often includes chronic bronchitis or emphysema as the subtypes, although there are variations of that too in terms of what are all included in COPD. And in terms of the definition of a COPD exacerbation, it too, I think, is defined differently by different groups. But in general, the definition remains a clinical one, which, as you mentioned, represents a departure from the day-to-day variation and includes frequently one or more of the following cardinal symptoms, increase in shortness of breath, increase in sputum volume, and or increase in sputum purulence. But I don't think that it's defined uniformly in in every case. And there are certainly patients who are hospitalized with increased dyspnea and perhaps increased sputum volume with no increase in purulence. 
that would be defined as exacerbation. And in some cases, patients just present with increasing dyspnea without increasing volume of sputum or purulence, and they too are sometimes diagnosed as having a COPD exacerbation. So this remains, I would say, a condition that has variable definitions. But however it is defined, there are over 800,000 hospitalizations for COPD exacerbations per year based on physician diagnosis as measured by billing codes. And I think there are varying subgroups here, I think, as you're, as you're suggesting, depending on which constellation of symptoms they have. Well, do you think, given the problem of COPD and hospital admission, do you think we know enough about it to focus on preventing rehospitalization? One of the factoids that keeps coming out is that when COPD patients are rehospitalized, it's often for the accompanying comorbid illnesses that they have rather than for COPD itself. So I, I, I kind of wanted to get your take on, is this an area we should be focusing on or is it just too diffuse? Absolutely. I think this is really at the core of what led to our paper, is that there is substantial attention now being placed on reducing hospitalizations for COPD exacerbations, and in particular, readmissions following hospital discharge in a patient that was initially admitted for a COPD exacerbation. Now, I think as most of our audience will know, that COPD exacerbations have multiple causes and most often involve a bacterial or viral respiratory airway infection. But people can also develop symptoms of what we're calling a COPD exacerbation from other causes, including pneumonia, heart failure, dysrhythmias, volume overload from renal failure, pulmonary embolism, and so on. So in other words, uh, there are numerous triggers to a respiratory exacerbation in someone with COPD. And therefore, preventing an exacerbation is, is truly a challenge because in some cases, you're addressing you know, a deterioration in a patient's pulmonary condition. In other cases, it may involve preventing the deterioration of a comorbid condition, as you're pointing out. And it turns out that about you know, nearly every patient with COPD, something on the order of 95% or higher of patients with COPD have at least one other important clinical condition, and many patients have three or more conditions, which makes it truly challenging. Now, I would say that as a, as a pulmonary community, you, we need to also perhaps consider the consequences of not addressing this or the consequences of continuing to operate as we currently do, which is essentially saying this is a very complicated situation. It has no single answer, and therefore we continue to do what we do. And I think that's going to be a challenge for us to be able to justify, given the increasing healthcare expenditures that are going on in this country and the recognition that whatever is being called by physicians as a COPD exacerbation, that there's over 800,000 of these leading to a hospitalization, and nearly one in five patients, when they leave the hospital, are coming back you know, within 30 days. So there sort of is a policy issue and a health care expenditure issue that's now driving a need for physicians and other providers to develop a solution. Let me suggest that we also think about some other things that relate to this. We know that this is a complex problem, but we also have at our disposal solutions to help reduce the risk of exacerbations and hospitalizations. For example, we know that regular use of inhaled corticosteroids or other treatments such as long-acting bronchodilators can reduce the risk of exacerbations. We also know that not all patients who are eligible for such therapy receive them or know how to use them. 
We also know that, especially among patients in the hospital, that you know, roughly one in five, if not a higher percentage of patients, leave the hospital without clear instructions about their follow-up appointment. And so there are elements of what we can do now with what we do know how to do that needs to be regularly, more consistently used in this patient population. And that really, I think, ought to be the focus of our efforts to prevent exacerbations, recognizing that we don't have all of the solutions to all of the causes for relapse after hospital discharge. I wanted to, I know you probably have the broadest view of the various, and they were quite a diverse group of interventions that you studied. So I wondered if you could describe your study, and then we'll delve a little bit into what you think made sense among the uh, various interventions that were tried, and we'll get into uh, where you think we should go from here. So start with telling us about the study. Absolutely. I think given the significance that preventing COPD exacerbations and more specifically preventing rehospitalizations in patients initially admitted for a COPD exacerbation is taken in the United States, we wanted to understand what is known about this area. What can we do in order to reduce the risk of rehospitalization. So we conducted a systematic review of the literature in which we searched multiple electronic databases where publications are stored. So for example, PubMed or the Cochrane Collaboration and so on. And we searched specifically for randomized clinical trials that enrolled patients who had been hospitalized for a COPD exacerbation and that had as a primary outcome or as a co-primary outcome rehospitalization. And we found about 800 articles that were published that meet these criteria. And then we went through them very carefully to evaluate the extent to which these articles did in fact meet the intent of the search, which is trying to find strategies, or trying to find studies, I should say, that examine strategies to reduce the risk of rehospitalization. And at the end of that process, we found five eligible studies. So 845 uh, articles identified through the literature search, five randomized clinical trials published. Of these, four of them were conducted outside of the United States, and one was conducted in the United States. And essentially what we found in terms of what the studies were testing is that they were testing a series of interventions, and in, in total, 19 different specific interventions were being tested across these five clinical trials. Several of the interventions that are being tested involved hospital-based strategies to promote disease education or health counseling, smoking cessation counseling, for example, teaching patients how to use inhalers before they go home, developing an action plan, and showing patients how to activate the action plan after patients leave the hospital. Some of them also included what's called bridging interventions. So these are interventions that relate to bridging the patient between hospital and home, in in some cases that involve referrals to pulmonary rehabilitation programs where there's a different level of medical attention that could be provided that could help transition the patient from an acutely ill hospitalized patient to a patient that's fully independent and able to care for themselves at home. 
So this may involve, for example, pulmonary rehabilitation or a referral for social services because there may be some outstanding issues that needed to be resolved. They could be exercise programs that are independently prescribed outside of pulmonary rehabilitation, for example. These are also called bridging interventions. In some cases, studies also use what's called a transition navigator where there is a person, often a nurse, but doesn't have to be a nurse, who essentially met the person in the hospital and was following them up post-hospital discharge and in some cases actually doing home visits. So helping them with the transition from hospital to home and then eventually to the ambulatory setting. Another set of interventions that were used in some studies included actual home visits or a follow-up telephone call or having a nurse case manager serve as essentially a patient hotline that a patient could call. So essentially a bag of interventions, in total about 19 of them, and these five clinical trials use different sets of these interventions. So none of the studies that we found consistently examined the same set of interventions. Some studies had 11 interventions that they examined. Some studies had smaller number or a greater number. What we essentially found as we went through the literature search is that of these five clinical trials that examined the use of these hospital-based bridging or home-based interventions, the two of them demonstrated a significant reduction in their risk of hospitalization. One was a clinical trial conducted by Dr. Jean Bordeaux and colleagues published in 2003, study conducted in Canada, and another one was a study published by Dr. Kessos and colleagues in 2006 that was a study conducted in Belgium and in Spain. Both of those showed a significant reduction in the risk of rehospitalization. Only one of these, the study by Kassas and colleagues, enrolled patients as they were hospitalized and followed them all the way through, including the post-discharge period. All of the other studies enrolled them only after they had gone home. So I guess of all of these five studies, only one of them literally is the kind of patient population we're talking about that's relevant to our systematic review directly. And that one, as I mentioned, demonstrated a significant reduction in the risk of rehospitalization, 45% versus 67%, so a 12% risk reduction. The only study that was done in the United States is a study published by Dr. Vince Fan and colleagues at a very large multi-center VA cooperative study that proposed enrolling about 1,000 patients but ended up being terminated prematurely after about 400 or so patients had been enrolled. That study was published in 2012. And it was stopped early because it didn't reduce the risk of rehospitalization. So the intervention arm was no more effective than the control group in its effects on rehospitalization. But the intervention arm surprisingly had a significantly higher all-cause mortality rate. 17% of patients in the intervention arm died post randomization versus 7% in the control group. So in summary, let, let me suggest that out of the five clinical trials that have been published to date, two of them demonstrated a statistically significant reduction in the risk of rehospitalization, and one of them, the only one done in the United States, showed a significant risk of harm with all-cause mortality being substantially higher in those that received the intervention. Let me also point out that uh, our findings suggested there was substantial heterogeneity across the studies with respect to what was actually being studied. So no two studies examined the same set of interventions so we could determine the extent to which the findings were applicable. They all used a different set of interventions. So for example, you know, as a specific, the timing and frequency of the interventions varied with respect to when home visits were done as an example, or the timing and frequency of self-management education, for example. There was also uh, substantial inconsistency regarding the reporting of the patient characteristics enrolled in the various studies. And we now know, for example, that 
clinical issues such as comorbidity, those are very strong independent predictors of rehospitalization, but so is socioeconomic status and various factors related to social determinants of health, such as whether or not someone has stable housing, whether they have problems with income or a stable job, or whether they have substance use as part of their uh, comorbidity. So there was variable reporting of these factors, and so it was very difficult to summarize or to synthesize across of these why two of the five trials showed benefit, why two of the five trials showed no effect, and why one of the five trials showed substantial risk of harm. So that's really the findings that we reported in our paper. Well, that was a great summary, but I'm going to uh, push a little bit further on this because uh, every day uh, we have our health system, we have our individual practice groups, uh, even the pharmaceutical companies are all touting different strategies or approaches to prevent COPD rehospitalization. So, Given these inconsistencies, where do you think we should go from here? And, and I'll ask you to kind of give your uh, thoughts on the individual physician basis and also on what uh, our health system and systems should be doing. Is, is this something an individual physician can deal with or is, is this really we're talking about a macro programmatic uh, changes. So I'd like to hear what you think because you know this area as well as anybody. Well, I think that our findings suggest that there is no reliable intervention that we know of that has an, uh, an evidence base that we could draw on that will help us to consistently reduce the risk of rehospitalization. So now the question is where do we go from here? After all, there are now financial penalties that health systems will face if the rehospitalization rate in patients who were discharged home following a COPD exacerbation is higher than the national average. We also know that there's variations in the rehospitalization rates across the country. And so there's substantial anxiety among physicians and other providers along with health systems about what to do given the state of evidence that's really not giving us a clear path forward. I think a couple of, couple of points I would make in order to answer your question. The first is I think a recognition by our physician and other provider colleagues that interventions may work, may not work, or may in fact be harmful given the state of what we know. And that any quality improvement program that we develop you know, may have a benefit, may not have a benefit, or may actually be harmful because most quality improvement programs that we develop and implement do not have a control group. And so without a concurrent control group, one needs to be very careful about implementing such a program without a careful monitoring and tracking to determine whether or not uh, we've actually implemented something that's effective and that it's a useful use of resources. I would say that as we move forward, we probably need to recognize that we need to have a broader conceptual framework relating to preventing the risk of re-exacerbations and hospitalizations after hospital discharge. And by that I mean not only focusing on the clinical factors that I think have been largely the focus of readmissions programs, have been focusing on the lung disease or the comorbid condition or the use of medications and doing what we can to optimize those parameters. But we also need to be thinking about the quality and access to care post-hospital discharge. Very few of the studies that we examined made it a point to think about what is the quality and access to care for these patients when they leave the hospital. And some solutions might include more careful care coordination with our ambulatory colleagues so that when a patient is being discharged home, that we make a phone call or send a letter or a discharge summary in a very 
time-sensitive way to our ambulatory colleagues so that they know that their patient has been discharged home. Here are the instructions or the recommendations we made on discharge, and here are some things that are outstanding that need to be followed up, and then a phone number that they can call if they have questions as they see their patient. It's also, I think, critical that we make sure that there's an appropriate handoff that includes an appointment so that the patient actually has an appointment before they leave the hospital and that there's a handoff, essentially, of care to an ambulatory provider in a time-sensitive way. Too many of our patients leave hospitals without a clear set of instructions about how to follow up. So that's, I think, one of the key factors. A third factor or a third component of this conceptual framework that's a lot harder for individual physicians to be able to make headway on but it's really a system issue, and maybe even ultimately a societal issue, it has to do with the issue of socioeconomic resources that are highly variable across our patient populations. And by that I mean that when patients leave the hospital, they're at various points in being able to use the instructions that, that we've given them and in, in a way that, that is effective in produ- reducing the risk of rehospitalization. So this may be due to issues of education or health literacy or income or social support, you know, whether or not they have a caregiver at home that can provide them the necessary support in order to fill prescriptions and take their medications on a consistent basis or social support in terms of helping patients quit smoking or stay quit. This may also involve, in some cases, caregivers who themselves smoke and maybe contributing to this problem of readmissions by having uh, environmental tobacco smoke in the homes. Some of the other issues involve housing and neighborhood-related factors and, of course, a series of behavioral factors, including substance abuse and adherence to therapy. So these kind of domains, these socioeconomic resource domains, I think will be very challenging for individual physicians and, in fact, I would say health systems on their own to be able to manage. And this suggests to me that part of the solution in reducing the risk of rehospitalizations, depending on the patient population that a health system serves, may involve the need to develop partnerships with community-based organizations that are, that are out there in the community actually providing care or providing support to our patients, but so far have been disconnected from the healthcare enterprise. So they're out there doing what's arguably very important work but in a, in, a, in a way that's not quite coordinated with our healthcare systems. So, for example, at the University of Illinois, where I work, we're now mapping community resources in Chicago that relate to our patient population and developing partnerships so that we can directly work with our community partners and patients leave the hospital. This is an effort we've just begun, so we have some room to go, and it's part of a Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute-funded project that we call partner. So I think that, you know, moving forward, I think health systems would need to think about what are the system level solutions that could be brought to bear to help providers and physicians provide the very best care in the hospital, build partnerships with community resources, and by so doing, essentially think about having a team effort that relates to reducing the risk. And along these lines, I would say that a a second component of this is, you know, many of the things I've just said are are outside of the daily work routine in most physicians. And I think that one of the things that we have learned as we have thought about developing more effective programs to reduce the risk of rehospitalizations is to engage uh, stakeholders who are involved in the process, participate in developing a hospital readmissions reductions program. And by that, I mean stakeholders are essentially, uh, as our audience knows, a person whose perspective or role is critical to the process. So anyone who has some role in the process of rehospitalization, be it a caregiver, 
a patient, a provider, you know, durable medical equipment company, someone that works in medical records, all of these individuals or groups that are part of the care transition period, I think can be engaged in order to develop a more effective hospital readmission reduction program. I want to say though that these are all, uh, these are very easy to say, but I would say, you know, a lot of people are struggling with developing these programs. And I want to, I want to also take this opportunity to say that the COPD Foundation has convened a COPD readmission summit a couple of months ago that brought together a few hundred individuals around the country to participate in a summit to talk about how best to reduce rehospitalizations. And I would encourage our audience to go on their website and look up some resources that have made available and to participate in the dialogue so that we can not only learn from each other as part of a learning healthcare systems, if you will, but also participate in potentially studies that need to be done to more definitively identify those interventions most likely to be successful. Jerry, this discussion was unbelievably useful. I, I think you very clearly pointed out the importance of the interplay between individual physician action and the need to bring in resources from a wider and wider network, including uh, regional and even national resources if we're going to reduce hospitalization, which ultimately means reducing costs so that we can can spend healthcare dollars at improving other aspects of our citizens' lives. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, and I would encourage all of the listeners to read the entire article coming out in the March issue of Annals of the American Thoracic Society. So once again, uh, we have heard a wonderful discussion from Dr. Jerry Krishnan from from the University of Illinois, and this is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor, saying good night to you all.